This is a podcast from CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a private nonpartisan think tank located in Washington, D.C. Good afternoon. I am Denise Jung, Program Manager and Research Assistant at the Technology and Public Policy Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. You are listening to the CSIS Cybersecurity Podcast Series, which features candid interviews with leaders and experts in the field of cybersecurity. This series is made possible by support from Raytheon Company. Today I am interviewing Rod Beckstrom, President and CEO of the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, also known as ICANN, the organization responsible for managing the Internet's domain name system, including IP address-based assignments. Rod, thank you so much for joining us today. In the last six months, ICANN has taken steps to make the Internet more open, available, and global. How do you increase the diversity of the Internet without compromising its integrity? Well, you have to focus on the points of quality control for integrity and let the, let the rest happen. So in our case, the most important single point of quality control is the updates to the Internet uh, root zone, which you know, sounds fairly trivial in a way, and yet it is absolutely zero tolerance for error. And one, and one has to understand as well that from time to time people might want to interject in that process because they may not be happy with assignments that have been made on what we call root zone delegation. So that, that those changes happen typically once a day. On average, about 300, 350 times a year, the Internet root zone file changes. Uh, so that's a really you know, tight process around that. You look at, on the other hand, you look at our policy process. We got 40 different tracks of policy initiatives underway right now across the constituencies. As a CEO, I don't worry very much about those because those are bottom-up led and staff supports them. So there's a lot of diversity there and in terms of the policies and how the Internet rolls out into new countries, new languages, whatever those set of issues might be. So I think the way you have integrity and yet you allow diversity is you focus on the fewest points where you have to, where there has to be very tight levels of, of consistency and quality control. With regard to internationalizing domain names, some experts are concerned that it will create cyber ghettos. Is this concern legitimate? No. I, I actually think it's silly. There are some cybersecurity concerns you might have of what we call strings or the domain names looking in one language like characters in another. That's a cybersecurity concern. This cyber ghetto thing, I don't get it. Because here's what people are, are, are suggesting, is that maybe the poor will get stuck with some, you know, domain that just fits their language. Well, the Internet's free. You get to set up your content and your, you know, your homepage, your webpage, wherever you want. And, they're all, and, and, and the costs are so low across the system. So, no, what you will see is diversity in the beauty of languages and culture. And, and we saw this with .cat for Catalan, or .cat, was the first uh, uh, linguistic uh, top-level domain or cultural top-level domain. And something very surprising happened, which is that it became a cultural connecting point for the people of Catalan and who, and who spoke Catalan, you know, which is similar to Spanish but different. And so no one really had thought that this would become a place for, for literature and arts and culture as well as the businesses, et cetera. But it really has happened. And so there's been a proliferation of content in the Catalan language because of the top-level domain. Is that ghettoization? No, it's exactly the opposite. It's a, it's a cultural you know, renaissance in some fashion. So uh, the ghetto term just makes no sense. You mentioned the transition from IPv4 to IPv6 in your speech at CSIS today. Are we moving quickly enough to IPv6, and should we be moving faster? 
Well, you know, the, the, the world will move to it as it has to and needs to. Um, there, there's a reverse network effect or inverse network effect kicking in here. There's no rewards to being the first mover. To being the first mover, in some cases, you're putting up more money, you're, you're upgrading all your infrastructure, and if other people aren't all using it, then you're not benefiting from all the capabilities that could be there, but you're front-end loading your investment. So there's an incentive in some fashion for people to drag their feet and wait. So that's part of what we're seeing. Now, the good news is that, you know, we don't necessarily see a crisis coming because what's happening is people are getting better at how they manage their networks to use fewer addresses. Or they're freeing up addresses. Some of the big network service providers are upgrading all the internal networks with IPv6 and freeing up, you know, thousands or in some case, you know, millions of network addresses and then giving those to their customers. So, so scarcity in IPv4 addresses is leading to a set of behaviors to use it more efficiently. The only concern that I would have about the scarcity process is that it's overloading something that's called the BGP routing tables. And what those are are the address blocks are allocated to certain blocks and groups. The internet routing system in IPv6 go, go, and it goes through border gateway protocol, which it links the huge intranets. There's tables in there which say where all the address blocks are in the world. It's up to 300,000 entries. It's growing fairly quickly now, and that's beginning to accelerate as smaller address blocks get broken off and moved between parties, physically getting moved to different places. So there, there's a, a slight technical issue according to some of the engineers, and I'm not an expert, so I'm trying to understand, uh, describe this in, a, in layperson's uh, language. Uh, there's some concerns that the routing tables uh, are getting too large and that could introduce some issues in the internet. That's about the only you know, hardcore concern I have with the transition IPv6. As you know, the Asian countries have been quicker to adopt IPv6. Are there first mover advantages? Well, they've been quicker to announce adoption. Okay. The actual network tests don't always confirm that those that have announced have really gone that far. Uh, and, and yet, well, the, the parties that have gone uh, forward, we're very happy of, are most of the registries around the world. Uh, most of them have upgraded to IPv6 and a dominant majority, and we've encouraged that, and that's gone very well. And in fact, it's a standard for us. So when we talk about the new GTLDs, you have to commit, is the current proposal, you have to commit to IPv6 and DNSSEC, or you're not a candidate for those new uh, top-level domains. Because we have contracts on those, and we can specify the technical criteria. My next two questions have to do with cybersecurity more broadly. As you know, there is an ongoing debate on how to define the roles, responsibilities, and authorities of various U.S. government agencies in securing our nation's digital infrastructure, in particular DHS, DOD, and the intelligence community. What do you want from the United States government for security, and what are important next steps? Well, I think that uh, we'd like to see all governments supporting DNSSEC strongly, including the U.S. government is a partner with us in part of the specific DNSSEC implementation of the actual what's called signing of the root zone. But the, all the U.S. networks, which are extensive networks, we'd like to see them rapidly adopt DNSSEC. In addition, the U.S. government is a huge customer of the big ISPs and others could begin demanding over time that the, uh, their providers move to DNSSEC as a contractual provision. And I, certainly we'd uh, like all countries to consider making those uh, commitments in their purchase contracts from their technology providers 
that 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 they commit to DNSSEC and what they implement for those governments and in the gear and, and, and services, and also that that uh, the companies themselves do that that are providing the services. So governments can kind of drive that that adoption process on DNSSEC. That's that's one thing on security. The other is uh, is we have this neutral role. So when the configure botnet attacked the network, and uh, a a a voluntary consortium came together called the Configure Working Group to attack and abate that 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 problem. Uh, we joined that immediately, and then we were asked very quickly by the group. They said, "Well, hey, this is an international problem. I mean, this is spreading all over, and if we don't contain it out internationally, that's just as bad as having it in our network because all the you know bot, you know the the request could come in and DDoS attacks or whatever might occur." So. We were asked to go out and get other countries involved, and ICANN, within a span of a month or two, was able to bring 100 countries to the table and, and get them engaged in the configure abatement, which helped to tamp down and put somewhat of a lid on that problem. That was an example of what we can do in our neutral position, because that affected the domain name system, and it wasn't about anybody's national priority versus another. You were formerly the head of the Department of Homeland Security's National Cybersecurity Center and deeply involved in, in defining the rules and responsibilities of DHS with regard to cybersecurity and securing the federal networks. That's an ongoing debate. In your opinion, what roles and responsibilities should DHS have? Well, I'm actually not going to comment on that only because in my current capacity, it's not my place to, to judge any specific country or nation and their program. So that was part of my experience. And uh, when I'm in a, in a different role in a different place, I can maybe comment upon that. Appreciate the question, but uh, I don't think it's appropriate for me to answer. Sure. And so the, with regard to DOD, probably you can't really comment on that either. Then. Now, on Friday, I'll be, I'll be presenting um, some national construct ideas about cybersecurity. And what that's going to relate to is saying that every every nation, uh, you know, we all face the cybersecurity challenge, and and we're all in this together. And you could look at it and say, well, there's, there's no way you can do anything, you know, because offense is a thousand times easier than defense. So give up, okay? Or go just go focus on law enforcement, which is one of my recommendations. Every country can focus on law enforcement. Law enforcement works because when people are in jail, they have a hard time hacking. And it's a serious disincentive. It discourages them from returning to the behavior, and it discourages their friends. So I'm a very big believer in the importance of further law enforcement efforts in all countries and international collaboration on law enforcement. And I'm a very big advocate for what I'm going to call the development of an ecosystem of cybersecurity centers around the world. Uh, centers of excellence or centers of specialty and also just collaboration centers. And the analogy would be in law enforcement, someone came up with the concept of a fusion center. And the fusion center is where the sheriff's office would get together with the local police office, together with the fire departments in different cities or counties, together with, you know, Center for Disease Control or whatever the set of nonprofit groups and advocate, you know. So they created these places where the parties could come together to, you know, whether to process, uh, uh, prosecute crimes and, and pursue crimes or deal with emergencies and responses. And those were places, and those places also had uh, 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 collaboration centers or places where people could meet and mix as well as have their private offices where they need to have their privacy and execute their authorities organizations. But those fusion centers are very successful in law enforcement. And, and there's over 20 uh, in the government now uh, in the United States alone supported by the federal government and many more at a state level. And uh, I'd like to see cyber fusion centers and, uh, around the world. 
And so in the sacrifusion center, you're not necessarily saying you have the authority or you have this authority. Because you have whatever authorities you have, bring them into the building uh, and go work together when you want and build relationships and have meetings and have responses. So it's a it's what I'm going to call, it's creating the uh, environment for collaboration. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that physical collaboration centers can be valuable all over the world as a national construct. Uh, and I also believe that virtual collaboration centers and using Web 2.0 and online tools to foster collaboration for cybersecurity uh, can be very valuable globally. Rod, thank you so much for participating in this interview and sharing your insight on these very critical cybersecurity issues. Thank you for listening to the CSIS podcast. For more, please visit us online at www.csis.org.